We'll see that as we look at the, the end, end part of this section here this morning. So the, the contrast in this passage then is between two, two different points. In the first half of this we see it, it's a turning away from false teaching, which is a demonstration of a lack of true love for each other. And then two, in the end, we see it's a moving toward each other in love to meet the needs of those less fortunate within the church community. If you're able, would you please stand as I read 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that you would teach us what is right concerning who you are and and what you require of us in response to how you've loved us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, apply these things to our lives that we might understand and rightly follow to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. In our house, we have a, uh, a three, almost four-year-old, and a one-year-old. And so as we approach dinner time, we know we're entering into the battle zone, right? Um, we, we, we take time preparing a meal we think is going to be good, and you enter into what we think is unnecessary conflict. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't have to tell my daughter that she has to eat her chicken nuggets. That goes without saying. She will devour all the chicken nuggets and ketchup you put in front of her. But anything on her plate that is not named chicken or nugget is going to be where the battle zone happens. So our dinner usually goes like this. Sweetie, you need to eat everything that's on your plate. Can I have more chicken nuggets? No, you can have more chicken nuggets once you eat all the good stuff, the green stuff and the healthy stuff. But I don't like it. I know. But it's good for you. Please eat it. And so it goes back and forth, back and forth all the time. You see, eating chicken nuggets comes very naturally from my daughter. I don't have to tell her to do that. What I do have to remind her is, is to eat the things that are actually healthy and good for her. Why do I mention that? Well, as John starts this passage, he has to remind the church. He says at the very beginning, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Why does John have to remind them to love one another? Because it doesn't come naturally to us. Right? It's, it's something that we have to be reminded of over and over and over again. We don't need the command to look out for yourself. That actually comes quite naturally for me, and I'm assuming for you as well. See, John doesn't say this at the beginning. For this is the message we've heard from the beginning. Look out for numero uno. Take care of yourself. Treat yourself. Right? No, no. He commands them to love one another And the rest of the passage then stems from these two perspectives. He starts in the first half of this then saying, this is what a failure to love looks like. 
And then we say in verses 17 and 18, he moves forward and says, this is what genuine love looks like. So as we begin to look at this, we're going to look at verses 11 through 15 first. And he he paints a, a very vivid and kind of stark picture of what not loving each other looks like. Now, here specifically in the church, one of the ways that people were not loving each other was by allowing false doctrine and false practice in their midst. Now, you might think, well, how is that not loving each other? That's just bad doctrine. Well, John makes the case that actually allowing false teaching and false belief and false practice is actually at the core of it, not loving each other. Since belief in God and trusting in Christ alone for salvation is a matter of life and death, it is unkind to mislead people from the truth. Do you hear that? Truth revealed in Scripture that leads us to eternal life is the most important thing you can know in life. To mislead people from that is unkind. And actually, it's far worse than unkind. John links teaching false doctrine and allowing false doctrine in your midst. He actually links that with being a murderer. And that seems extreme. And yet, in this context, it often refers not only to the physical death, but to the spiritual death of the ones who are involved. See, John says, love one another. And then where does he go with that? Immediately in verse 12, he says this. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain, the first human in history to murder another human. He was... He is seen as a, a prototypical rebellious man, as sort of the, the quintessential uh, evil one, in, in the very first one who perpetrated murder. And so, in ancient literature, if you were to use the name Cain, for those hearers, it would have been like us using the word Hitler. Okay? We, we, we use the word Hitler, and all of a sudden you have all of these images... You have all of these uh, feelings and ideas associated with Hitler. Uh, one who was wicked... One who was a murderer, a mass murderer. One who was purely evil. Well, in ancient literature, when a writer would use the term Cain, it's supposed to, to, to conjure up some of those same feelings of he was the prototypical one who was evil, who was apart from the, the intent of God and actually siding on the side of evil. And, and actually, even more than that, uh, John says you are, or Cain, is referenced as to being of the child of Satan. Right? We know this because he says right here, uh, we should not be like Cain, who was of the, who was of the evil one. And, and Rick last week talked about the difference between being a, a child of God and a child of Satan. And we don't often use those categories. Like, you don't walk up to somebody on the street and say, Hi, are you a child of God or a child of Satan? Probably not the best way to start a conversation. But we do know that there are, scripturally, only two types of people. And Rick talked about that in the past couple of weeks. We don't love dichotomies. We don't like to say there's only one or the other. We love the middle ground. We love gray ground. One of my favorite scenes in one of Bill Murray's movies. What about Bob? He was in, he was in a counseling session. And he was, he was describing to the counselor why his marriage was falling apart. And, and he tells the counselor, well, there are two types of people in the world. Those who love Neil Diamond and those who don't. Right? And he draws that dichotomy, and, and, and all of a sudden, you've now polarized the whole thing. Well, John is doing the same thing. You're either a child of God, or you're a child of Satan. And here John is saying, why did Cain murder his brother? Well, you had two different brothers 
with two different spiritual lineages. Abel was a child of God. Cain was a child of the evil one, a child of Satan. And out of that spiritual lineage, out of his allegiance to the evil one, came murderous thoughts and intentions. False doctrine, false understanding of who God was and how Cain lived that out led to the actions of him actually killing his brother. Now, not everybody who does not follow after God is going to actually physically murder somebody. But we're going to see later on that out of the heart, out of the intentions, even if we hate somebody, we're being equated with a murderer, with our true spiritual father. If we truly are not in God, then our spiritual father is Satan. Well, you see, as we read earlier in Genesis 4, Cain killed his brother, and his desire to kill his brother was rooted in a false understanding of God. Cain was jealous that his offering was not Uh, That his offering was rejected, but Abel's was accepted. And and here we see that, again, that the bad doctrine of false understanding, false beliefs of what God required of him and and what it meant to be in a relationship with him led to evil thoughts and actions. And ultimately, a false understanding of God is then rooted and demonstrates where his spiritual lineage is. Jesus picks up on that same language in John chapter 8 when he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, he accuses the Pharisees... Of this, He says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. Again, we don't see Satan literally murdering people. But in his deception of Adam and Eve in the garden, he brought upon the spiritual and physical death of Adam and Eve and everybody who followed after them, which is all of humankind. And so the lies... That Satan sowed in the garden. The lies, the bad doctrine, if you will. The the, the weaving in false truths about who God was and what he required. Led to the death of Adam and Eve and all of their offspring, which includes all of humanity. And so, John is weaving in this theme of false teaching actually is, is, you can equate it with murdering. Because it deals with our sin and ultimate spiritual and then physical death, which is as a result of that. And here, John equates those who are spreading falsehood among the church as those whose father is Satan, whose desires are evil. And then immediately, John, in in verse 13, he takes a break from that. He takes takes a moment for application. He says this, Well, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. The world, here is a category John is using to describe those who do not love God, those whose spiritual lineage is not from the, the God as father, but as the evil one as father, He says, don't be surprised if the world hates you because ultimately those who do not love God will not love righteousness and those associated with it, as we saw with Cain and Abel. We should not be surprised when Christians are persecuted. And Scripture gives us pictures over and over that that's the case. We should not be surprised when the culture does not uphold and support Christian values. We should not be surprised by that. We should not be surprised if there are real consequences for following Christ. And you may have experienced those in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood. Maybe not. In America, we've had some shelter of that. But if you have, if you have any contact with believers outside the context of America, you know the reality that believers around the world face for proclaiming the name Christ. Right now, we have a dear friend who is, this week, flying back overseas to Sudan to visit his family. He grew up in South Sudan, and he's going to go minister and bring relief to family members and friends in refugee camps there. And every time he does this, he does it about once a year, we know 
he may not come back. And yet he goes willingly and with the joy of the Lord. And he is one of the sweetest and dearest brothers I've ever known. But he knows the consequences. That by proclaiming the name of Christ, we will be persecuted. Because we should not deceive ourselves when we live a normal and comfortable American life. There is a battle going on right now. And we don't like to talk in terms of battle in, in, in Christian terms. Uh, the, the idea of the church as, as a militant organization has been abused over the years. And so we shy from that language. But the Bible is very clear to say that there is a spiritual war going on beneath the surface. A battle for our souls. And we should not be ignorant of that. That Satan wants to destroy us. He wants to destroy the work of God's kingdom. And he wants to use every tactic possible to take us down. So don't be deceived. But also don't be surprised when you face difficulty if you're following after Christ. We're promised that that will actually happen. He moves back in then after kind of that small application point in verse 13. And he says, in verse 14, We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. You see, those who do not love the truth, who do not love God, who are not part of God's family, he says, abide in death. Very simply, John states that those who do not reflect God's love in their lives demonstrate that they're not part of God's family, and thus they're under the power of sin and death. Those who do not love God abide in death, meaning they are still under the power and the penalty of death. We know for those in Christ, death is not the final stage for us. But death means separation from the body for a time, until Christ comes back and all things are made new, and we will dwell with God in paradise, in a renewed and restored earth. That's the end story for those in Christ. But for those not in Christ, they abide in death, and their future is death and destruction and eternal torment. And that is not something I love to say, but it is true. Again, there are two destinations. One is walking in in heaven and living in heaven with God in paradise. The other is in hell forever in torment, separation from God. And those who do not recognize Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in this life, they abide in death, and death is their destination. In fleshing this out, John picks up on something in verse 15, where he says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He's picking up on something that Jesus said in Matthew 5, in the Beatitudes, where everyone who hates his brother is guilty of sin. And we read that earlier uh, this morning in the worship service. Now this sounds a little extreme, doesn't it? That you hate somebody, you're a murderer. Anybody who says you fool is guilty of the judgment? What's going on here? Well, the word translated as murderer is the same word that Jesus used when he described Satan in John 8. And again, Jesus was talking to those who were teaching false things, and he called them saying that their father was Satan, who was a murderer and a liar, in doing so, he's equating hatred of another with the taking of that person's life. Why? How? Well, to hate someone is to wish for their demise as a human. Which in biblical terms means death, both physical and spiritual. To teach false doctrine is an act of hatred which leads to spiritual death. To truly hate someone, you with your thoughts and your attitudes are wishing their demise And he's equating that with the fact that you want to kill them. It's the ultimate manifestation of not loving one another. And because allowing false teaching is to allow someone to consume that which is deadly. 
So again, John is saying in the church, he's, he's, he's writing to the brothers and the sisters in the church, he's saying, don't allow that which is poison. For if you allow poison to permeate your ranks in there, you are doing harm to the body. You're allowing people who actually hate the church to influence the church. You're allowing the church to consume that which is deadly. And in doing so, those who are doing that are just as guilty as murderers. Because you are leading to their spiritual demise. If you're a parent, or if you've ever cared for a young child, you, you know the responsibility you have to make sure that, that that child does not eat anything or put anything in their mouth that's going to harm them, right? It's why you put locks on cabinets. It's why you take things off the floor and put them in absurd places that kids can't reach and you can't reach because you don't want them to touch it. It's to protect them for their own good. It's actually loving them. Every night, we play this little game in our living room after the kids go to sleep. It's called, What Can We Find in Our Living Room Carpet? And so we scour the carpet, it's kind of this shag rug, and we scour it and you find Cheerios and raisins and Legos and coins and bobby pins and the brother we hadn't seen for a couple of days. And, um, you know, uh, since our son, who's one, plays on the carpet every day and his hands are down there and anything he gets his hands on, he goes immediately to his mouth, we have to make sure that there's nothing in that carpet that he can get and put in his mouth that will harm him. It's our responsibility as parents for him. The church has that responsibility for those who are here, right? Think about your church. You may wonder at times why the leadership might recommend some books or some movies or some, uh, some music, but steer you away from others when those things might even be at the top of the Christian book bestseller list, right? Why would they do that? If it sells a lot, it must be good. That's not true. One of the ways your leadership functions is to protect the doctrine of the church, and in doing so, they are loving you and caring for you and protecting you. It's to protect you for your own good. And this is an act of love. And as parents, you should be doing the same thing for your kids. Protecting the doctrine, what they believe about the world, protecting what they believe about God, what they believe about others, what they believe about their own sin. Don't let them buy into the doctrine the world is teaching them. And I know Rick has talked about this over the past several weeks. There is a worldview about what love and hate actually are out there. But there is what the scriptures reveal what love and hate actually are. As parents, you have a responsibility to train your kids up in a way that reflects the truth of what scriptures have. And in doing so, that is loving them. By not doing that, by not protecting what your kids hear and believe and trust in, is actually doing harm. And John equates that with if we allow doctrine that is false and harmful, we are hating that person. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you have to remove your kids from all worldly influences. It's impossible. What I am saying is this. Know your kids. Shepherd your kids. Have conversations with them. Lead them back to Scripture and engage them in conversations that would lead them to the truth. And that is loving your children. Well, let's, let's, let's turn to the second part of the Scripture here. In, in verse 16, John, John takes a, 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 he shifts the focus. says, this is what genuine love looks like. Verse 16 says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is love, that he laid down his life for us, that he is, he's talking about Jesus. That Jesus laid down his life for us. The greatest example of love is Christ dying for us, that we might be reconciled to God through him. And Christ laid down his life for the unlovely, the rebellious, the wicked, 
Scripture says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't lay down his life for those he, he thought were pretty cool and thought he was going to get something in return for. Christ died while we were still sinners and still rebellious and still hating him. He took on our sin and we get his righteousness credited to our account. Do you hear that? When Christ laid down his life, he took on all of our sin and we received his righteousness. That's called the great exchange or double imputation that he takes all of our sin, we get all of his righteousness. So when we stand before God, God sees the righteousness of Christ and our sin has already been paid for and we are then accepted in the presence of God because of Christ laying his life down for us. It's the ultimate act of love. We are then transformed and then enabled to live in a way that is other-centered. And that's why it's important to protect the right doctrine. Because you have to understand that truth in order to be reconciled to God. There is no other way to be right with God other than through the gospel of Jesus Christ revealed in the scriptures. Anything else will condemn you. Do you hear that? And that's important. And that's why we are so adamant about protecting the truth. Because it is a matter of life and death. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. You cannot be good enough. You cannot be nice enough, good-looking enough, generous enough to earn God's favor. It's only in the righteousness of Christ that we are made right with God. And that is absolutely important to understand. So he moves on and says, He laid down his life for us, therefore we ought to lay down our lives for others. Now, this is not necessarily a literal laying down, a dying of ourselves... Uh, physical death. We don't have to actually die for somebody else. Now, you may do that, but that's actually more rare um, than, than you would think if, if that was actually literal. But it's a laying down, which is a dying to self, a foregoing of our rights and privileges so that others might benefit. We get a great picture of that in Ephesians 5 when Paul talks about the role and the relationship between a husband and a wife. Now, we often focus on the part in Ephesians 5 that talks about wives submit to your husbands, and we get all bent out of shape about that. But do you know what that's rooted in? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you understand that? The way a marriage works is if a husband truly loves his wife the way that Christ loved the church, which is foregoing his rights and his privileges and all of his, you know, uh, Christ humbled himself as God and took on the form of flesh as a human and humbled himself to die on a cross that we might be reconciled to God. Husbands, love your wives like that. Then think about how much easier it would be for a wife to love her husband if a husband loved like that. Well, in a broader sense, we're called to do that as Christians to each other. We are called to lay down our lives in a way that foregoes our rights and our privileges and our opinions and our you know, preferences so that others might benefit. And I have to tell you, that actually might be harder than actually dying for somebody else. It's heroic to actually die for somebody. It is excruciatingly painful to forego your opinion. <laughs> Sometimes, Right? Or your preferences of where you're going to eat. Or how you want to raise you know, your kids. Or there, there are things you're going to have to do. You're going to have to come together. And you're going to have to forego strong opinions to come together that you might benefit others. All saying in the context of not compromising truth. Right? It's a selfless, other-centered mindset that puts others' needs ahead of ourselves. Then he moves on into verse 17 and he says this. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? 
this passage can get taken out of context. Let's, let's start first and see what this actually is saying, okay? And Rick has talked about this before. John is writing this letter to the church. And as he uses the term brothers, he's talking about for those who believe in Christ, those who are in the church, right? So first, he's referring to the church. When he says, when he says in verse 17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, he's saying those in the church, right? If anybody sees somebody in the church who has a need... We need to respond. So it is saying this is the church. Two, he instructs the church to look out for those who are among them. It would be a bad witness to the world, and it would be disobedience to Christ if a church has those among them who are truly suffering and in need, and those within the church who have the ability to help, and they don't. That would be a bad witness to the world of what the church is, and it would also be disobedience to the call of Christ. Within the church, there should be an atmosphere of family. That's why we, in the scriptures, they use the terms brother, sister. We are family in Christ. Where we truly, genuinely, with love, look out for the needs of others. And if you look around and you look at the church, it's obvious that God has blessed some with much. And that's okay. It's okay to be wealthy. That's never seen as a sin. Having wealth is not a sin, but love of money is the sin. Right? So don't look at the wealthy and think they're sinning. No. And don't look at the poor and think they've done something wrong to be there. No. But God has given to each in their life different lots. And both are in the church and both need each other. It's good to have different socioeconomic groups and different races and different people in the church. It's the body of Christ. But we must come together and meet each other in our needs. Now let's look at this and see what this is not saying. Okay? First, we have to understand what need is. When it says, when you see your brother in need, this does not mean that if there's someone in here who does not have a smartphone, we need to come to their immediate aid. Okay? I'm sorry, children, <laughs> or those who don't have a smartphone. We have to understand what true need is. In America, we often think need is something, but in reality, in the grand scheme of, of life in the world, it's a want. And our culture tells us wants become needs. So, understand what a need is. We're talking about real life struggle and needs. Food, shelter, clothing, safety, etc. Right? Basic human needs. Two, the church is not obligated to help all people everywhere, every time. That's actually impossible. Okay? We're not obligated to do that. And we would be under a mountain of guilt if we had to bear that weight and responsibility that we had to help everybody, every time, all around the world. You would live under a constant sense of guilt or harden your heart toward that because you can't do that. Three, the statement from John is not a mission statement to alleviate worldwide poverty or to begin a socialist redistribution program within the church or within your community. That's not what he's saying. See, the church is different. The church is compelled, not forced, by the gospel of Jesus Christ to lay down, lay aside our comfort and our convenience and our rights to model Christ's love to a watching world. And the primary place this plays out is the church. Do you hear that? The primary place, the laying down of our rights and our privileges to benefit others is the church first. Now, again... Hear my next statement before you get angry, okay? It certainly can and should extend beyond the church walls. It should extend beyond this church community. The primary place, though, is this. If we're caring 
for the community out there, but you're letting a brother or sister go hungry in the church or without basic needs, that's a disservice to the name of Christ. It starts here and it branches out into the community. There's a really helpful concept for me as I wrestle through this, as I you know, think through, well, what is my responsibility? Who should I help? How should I help? And the resources I have and the limitations I have, how do I help with the problems of the world? There's a concept that uh, Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert in their book, What is the Mission of the Church? They have a chapter, and, part of, and one of the chapters focuses on, focuses on this idea of moral proximity. And what I mean by that is this. The closer the need, the greater the moral obligation to help. You hear that? The closer the need, the greater the moral obligation to help. Let me give some, some feet to what I mean by that. Well, in the Old Testament, the greatest responsibility was to one's family, and then to their tribe, and then to Israel as a whole, and then to other nations. So it started at home, to your tribe, to the nation, and then and to those outside. The principle can be applied here. We have obligations to our family, to our church, to our neighborhood, our community, all to differing degrees, but still obligations. Now we have to understand the difference between obligation and generosity. Okay, If there's a family in this church that loses everything to a fire, everything... I would venture to say that Holy Cross is obligated to come to the aid of that family to help them get back on their feet. First, by providing housing while they are without. Second, by perhaps donating money for clothing for the kids and for the family and helping find new housing. I would say, Holy Cross, you've taken vows to each other. You're obligated to help that family. If a family in Colorado loses everything to a fire, it would be generous to help them. But you are not obligated to help them like you are the family within your own church. Does that make sense? Now, if the family in Colorado that lost their, their house was related to you, your obligation to them is different than the person sitting next to you in the chairs here. So, you, you know, there's different spheres of, of moral proximity. And sometimes it's not necessarily geographic proximity, but it's relational proximity. You may have a friend a missionary you support in another country and something happens there and you feel obligated to help. And that's okay. That's actually really good. We should be generous people. But our obligation to help is going to differ in the different proximities and contexts that we have. So it frees us up to understand this, that what we ought to do in one circumstance is what we may do in another circumstance. Do you understand that? What we ought to do in one, we may do. So when the family's house burns down here, you ought to help. When a family's house burns down in Colorado, you may help. And you're freed in the gospel to be generous and do that. But you, and it's not necessarily an ought. And on the flip side of that, let me say this. Many of you have strong passions in the world. Right? And some of them may be, may be focused here in the church. And many of them may be focused out in the community. And that's great. It may be helping uh, with adoption. maybe helping with foster care helping to end human trafficking, helping in soup kitchens, helping dot, 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 you name whatever your passion is. And that is wonderful. As a Christian, and, and as God has led you, and as you're generous with your time to do that, wonderful, do that. I want to make a quick note, pastoral advice. What God has laid on your heart to do and to serve, that might be an ought for you, but it might be a may for somebody else. Don't assume that everybody has to own your passion equally. And don't assume that the church has to own all of your passions equally that you're doing out there, here. The church can't own your own personal passion equally. So if you are 
just overboard, wonderfully involved in helping to end human trafficking. That's wonderful. And if the church doesn't own it the way that you do, that's also okay. Don't fault the church for not owning all your passions the same. Again, moral proximity. The church has a mission. And the the main mission of the church is to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ that unrepentant sinners might hear it, repent and believe and be reconciled to God. That is the main mission of the church. Okay? There are a lot of good things that come out of that. But we have to protect that mission of the church. So, back to this. In verse 18 then. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. There's a connection then between what we believe and what we do. It's not empty doctrine that, it's not just word or talk that builds up our head knowledge, but leads us to do nothing to a callous heart, but rather it's a doctrine, it's an understanding of God that leads us toward good deeds. James, in his book, the New Testament, puts it this way. Show me your faith apart from works. I will show you my faith by my works. You see, genuine love rooted in the truth of the gospel is demonstrated not merely in head knowledge, but rather in a life that is other-centered, looking out for needs and compelled by the love of Christ. It starts in your family, has a huge place rooted in the church that we look out for each other's needs in generosity and in obligation here. And then we use the, the beauty of, of the church here to then go and bless the community in all sorts of wonderful and practical ways. But it starts with your family and it starts with the church. Compelled by the love of Christ, having been changed, knowing he laid down his life for us, we then are willing to lay down our rights and our privileges that others might be blessed. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we have your word, that you have revealed yourself to us, that we can know what right doctrine is, that we can know what it means to be reconciled to you through your Son. God, I pray that we would do a good job of protecting that truth within the church, within our families, within our friendships, that we would be loving each other by speaking truth, rather than withholding that love by allowing, sometimes even uh, Uh, perpetuating false doctrine and untruth, which is actually hatred towards others. God, free us of our love of money. Free us of our comfort and our idol of comfort, that we might truly bless those in this church, that we might meet those in need, and also then use the blessing of this church to bless our community, that they would see the beauty of Jesus Christ and a picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. Use this church mightily here in Stanton, And as they expand to Fishersville, I pray that you'd continue to let the gospel go forward. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.